Okay, this is uh, Psalm 41. It's to the chief musician. It is a Psalm of David. Blessed is he who considers the poor. The Lord will deliver him in time of trouble. The Lord will preserve him and keep him alive, and he will be blessed on the earth. You will not deliver him to the will of his enemies. The Lord will strengthen him on his bed of illness. You will sustain him on his sickbed. I said, the Lord be merciful to me. Heal my soul, for I have sinned against you. My enemies speak evil of me. When, when will he die and his name perish? And if he comes to see me, he speaks lies. His heart gathers iniquity to itself. When he goes out, he tells it. All who hate me whisper together against me. Against me, they devise my hurt. An evil disease, they say, clings to him. And now that he lies down, he will rise up no more. Even my own familiar friend in whom I trusted, who ate my bread, has lifted up his heel against me. But you, O Lord, be merciful to me and raise me up that I may repay them. By this I know that you are well pleased with me, because my enemy does not triumph over me. As for me, you uphold me in my integrity and set me before your face forever. Blessed be the Lord God of Israel from everlasting to everlasting. Amen and amen. Okay, our sermon today is from Exodus 10. It's verses uh, 21 through 29. And uh, it's entitled, The Plague of Darkness. So starting at verse 21, Then the Lord said to Moses, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt, darkness which may even be felt. So Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven, and there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. They did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Only let your flocks and your herds be kept back. Let your little ones also go with you. But Moses said, You must also give us sacrifices and burnt offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. Our livestock shall also go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind, for we must take some of them to serve the Lord our God. And even we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him, Get away from me. Take heed to yourself and see my face no more. For in the day you see my face, you shall die. So Moses said, You have spoken well. I will never see your face again. The Bible uses countless natural things to teach us spiritual truths. The finger, a rock, a door, the almond, water, types of grain, and on and on. God created these things And so completely understanding them in every way, he uses them to teach us spiritual truths. Man does the same as well. We may use the word book as a metaphor for knowledge, or we may use glasses as a metaphor for clear sight. However, we may use things in a way which isn't the way intended by God. Instead, we twist their intent and form it into an idol of our own making. The sun can reflect spiritual truths, and in the Bible it does just that. But the Bible also reveals that the sun can and has been made into a false god. We rob the creator of the honor that he is due for creating the sun, and instead we give the honor to the creation. Egypt worshipped the false god of the sun called Ra. It was one of their principal deities. However, God was able to deny Egypt their false god in a way which would have been rather frightening. Does anybody here know what nyctophobia is? How about ligophobia? Scotophobia? 
What about achluophobia? Guess what? They're all the same phobia, a fear of darkness. I went through quite a few lists of rankings concerning phobias in preparation for this sermon that people had compiled, and every one of them included a fear of darkness, every single one of them. Most admit that this is something that children are prone to, and it diminishes with age, but some people never get over it. What goes bump in the night is truly a scary thing to them. My guess is that when the plague of darkness ended in Egypt, there were a lot more people with nyctophobia than there were when it started. This is real darkness, a groping darkness. Our text verse for today comes from Isaiah 60. It's the second verse. For behold, the darkness shall cover the earth and the deep darkness the people. But the Lord will arise over you and his glory will be seen upon you. I experienced darkness like what, like what came upon Egypt once. And I'll tell you about it in a couple of minutes. I can tell you that nothing, and I mean this sincerely, nothing is so terrifying. The senses strain, the mind reels, and the heart beats very fast in such a circumstance. Imagine living through three full days of this. The Rolling Stones wrote a song in the mid-60s called Paint It Black. At the very end of the song, it says, I want to see it painted, painted black. Black as night, black as coal. I want to see the sun blotted out from the sky. I want to see it painted, painted, painted black. The words reflected a spiritual truth in the person. His life was black and he wanted creation black all around him as well. If only he knew what true blackness was like, he would probably do a closer self-examination and long for the light. Eternal outer darkness is how Jesus describes hell. He says it's a place of weeping and gnashing of teeth, and he teaches us that it is a real place where real people really will be sent. But being sent there is actually a voluntary choice. He has offered us light, life, and peace in place of that. Jesus took all of the darkness of the world upon himself so that we could see the true light of God once again. Think on these things as we evaluate today's verses concerning the ninth plague upon Pharaoh, Consider where you will spend eternity as we once again look into his superior word. And so let's turn to that precious word once again. And may God speak to us through his word today. And may his glorious name ever be praised. I have three thoughts for you today. The first is darkness that can be felt. It's verses 21 through 23. Verse 21. Then the Lord said to Moses, stretch out your hand toward heaven. Arriving now at the ninth plague, we should look back and remember that the first nine plagues are divided into three distinct groupings. Advance warnings are given to Pharaoh in the first two of the plagues of the specific group, but when the third plague comes, it is without any previous notice. That was the case with the third plague of lice and the sixth plague of boils, and now the ninth plague of darkness. And so without telling Pharaoh what is coming, Moses is instructed to stretch out his hand toward heaven. Where the hand and the rod are directed is where the plagues come from. The same is true with this plague as well. The hand is stretched out toward heaven and the plague which will result from it will come as a covering from there as well. After the sixth plague of boils and just before the seventh plague of hail, we read this. Thus says the Lord God of the Hebrews, let my people go that they may serve me. For at this time I will send all of my plagues to your very heart and on your servants and on your people that you may know that there is none like me in all the earth. The hail, the locusts, and now the coming plague of darkness would come in rapid sequence. And so even without prior notice, 
Pharaoh would understand that this plague was more than a natural occurrence, being divinely directed instead. Verse 21 continues, that there may be darkness over all the land of Egypt. The darkness is not explained in any further detail in the Bible, and so it leaves open many possibilities as to its nature. However, what is most likely is that it is another naturally occurring event, okay? The locusts of a couple years ago, I mentioned that in a previous sermon, in 2013 came in the springtime. It's the same time of year that the locust plague came in Egypt. This year, 2015, has had an exceptional amount of such events similar to the plague of darkness around the world, also during the springtime. This is the time when they are expected to occur. They are known as Hamsin, which is an Arabic term derived from the word 50, because the winds blow sporadically over a 50-day period. Though the Arabic term is Hamsin, the Egyptians call it Hamasin, and in Israel they are known as Sharav. The biblical term for Hamsin is Ruach Kadim, or the east wind. They are dry, they're hot, and they're sandy. In North Africa and the Arabian Peninsula, they normally blow in from the south. In Egypt, they come normally between March and May, and they bring in immense amounts of sand and dust from the deserts. The winds will blow up to 85 miles an hour, almost like a hurricane, and they will actually cause the temperature to rise as much as 65 degrees in just a couple of hours. Like I said, this phenomena has been happening all around the world this year. In mid-April, the sands have covered much of China to even as far as Belarus, which went from sunny to absolutely pitch black in just a couple of minutes. For those in Egypt, it would not be an unexpected event, and yet, because it occurred in conjunction with the other plagues, and because of its duration, it could also be considered supernatural. Once again, God is using a plague which is notable enough to catch Pharaoh's attention, but natural enough to further harden his heart. Regardless of what Pharaoh will think about the plague, it will be so intense that it is described with exceptional hyperbole. Here's what it says, verse 21, continuing, darkness which may even be felt. The Hebrew here reads, ve'yamesh chosech. The pulpit commentary translates this literally as, and one shall feel or grasp darkness. It is a darkness that causes one to grope about because no light at all can get into the eyes. To move about, well, with using only your hands or your feet as guides would lead maybe to a bumped head or a chipped tooth or maybe even a poked out eyeball or a broken shin. But if this darkness is coming from an unusually heavy sandstorm, then it also could literally be felt. Reports of sand filling houses through every single crack are common. The winds are so strong and the dust so fine that it literally fills every minute space. The darkness would be complete and the sensation would be literally felt. This plague would carry the same meaning to Pharaoh and to the Egyptians as the other eight had. It is an attack against their gods as much as punishment for abusing and refusing to release Israel. This plague is to be an attack on Ra, the sun god, Horus, a lesser sun god, Nut, the sky goddess, and Hathor, another sky goddess. Now Charles Ellicott notes this. I want to read it to you. Ra, the sun god, was among the principal objects of their worship especially in the delta where Heliopolis and Pithoni were cities dedicated to him. Darkness was a creation of Set, the evil principle, the destroyer of Osiris and of Apophis, the great serpent, the impeder of souls in the lower world. It would have seemed to the Egyptians that Ra was dead, that Set had triumphed over his brother, 
that Apophis had encircled the world with his dark folds and plunged it in eternal night. Hence, Pharaoh's early call for Moses and permission that the people should depart with their families. Now, although this might be a normal conclusion of Pharaoh, I have to completely disagree with Ellicott's assessment. Pharaoh would not be at all concerned about a battle between the gods of Egypt. He has been introduced to Jehovah, the God of the Hebrews, and he is fully aware of the promise of continued plagues from him. Further, his coming actions demonstrate that he is not at all concerned about an internal struggle between these supposed gods, but rather his concern is that the Lord would remove his hand from Egypt and grant them release from the plague. Verse 22, so Moses stretched out his hand toward heaven. Again, as has been the case after the first few plagues, Aaron is not mentioned as having taken the action. Rather, it's Moses who, in obedience to the Lord, stretches out his hands towards Hashemayim, or literally, the heavens. It is plural. Verse 22 continues, And there was thick darkness in all the land of Egypt three days. The term of the last verse is explained in this one. Darkness which may even be felt is given the intensive Hebrew term chosech afelah, an obscurity of darkness. It is the deepest darkness of all. It will be so dark that it will seem that darkness itself has been obscured. The senses will be overloaded to the point that they will be unable to reason in their normal way. And as I said, I personally experienced an event almost identical to this when I was mining gold in Alaska in the late 1990s. I worked at a little miner's camp with a couple of other guys. We were on the 40-mile river, and we were right on the Canada border. It is the remotest place I have ever been in my life. I don't think you can get any further away from humanity as we were there. One day, when it was absolutely clear blue skies, it suddenly started to get dark, dark from a forest fire. And within only a few minutes, and I mean literally, in just a few minutes, it was so dark that you couldn't hold your hand an inch from your eyes and even see a shadow of it. We had to grope to simply find our way to a tent and then grope to find matches to light a lamp. But even when lit... The darkness immensely, it just completely consumed the light so that we could barely see it all. There was so much smoke and so much ash that it simply swallowed up the light around it. And so there we sat, not knowing where the forest fire was in relation to us or how we would get away from it if it came. It was truly a terrifying experience. And then, as quickly as the darkness came, it disappeared completely. The sky was blue and the visibility was once again unlimited. It was darkness which could be felt, and it was complete in its ability to consume the light around us. Now, if that instance were an example of the intensity of the plague in Egypt, then this was an astonishingly terrifying plague for those who had to endure it. Three days of this would leave one in a state of complete misery. I assure you of that. The plague then is one directed specifically to punish Pharaoh, the man, and Egypt's false gods. Matthew Henry notes the connection between the physical nature of the plague and the spiritual nature of the reason for it when he says these words. It continued three days, six nights, and one. So long, the most lightsome palaces were dungeons. Now Pharaoh had time to consider if he would have improved it. Spiritual darkness is spiritual bondage. While Satan binds men's eyes that they see not, he binds their hands and feet that they work not for God nor move toward heaven. They sit in darkness. It was righteous with God thus to punish. The blindness of their minds brought upon them this darkness of the air. Never was mind so blinded as Pharaoh's. Never was air so darkened as Egypt. This plague on Egypt is given as a punishment for the spiritual darkness of Pharaoh and his kingdom. 
But a similar plague is coming again in the future. It's prophesied in Revelation chapter 16 at the pouring out of the fifth bowl. Here's what it says. Then the fifth angel poured out his bowl on the throne of the beast, and his kingdom became full of darkness, and they gnawed their tongues because of the pain. They blasphemed the God of heaven because of their pains and their sores, and they did not repent of their deeds. The throne of the beast will receive like judgment to that of Pharaoh. It will consume the light, and it will send them into an even further degraded state of spiritual darkness. The world of the future will be a bleak and sorrowful place to behold. And it's all a result of a self-inflicted wound brought about by turning from God and from the true light of the world, Jesus Christ. Oh, if the world would just wake up to the truth of what he has done, they would be spared the miseries which are sure to come in the days ahead. Verse 23, they did not see one another, nor did anyone rise from his place for three days. The Hebrew here reads, lo raul esh et achiv, man did not see his brother. If the darkness here is as intense as what I experienced in Alaska, then there's no reason to not accept it exactly as written. Even if a light was on in the house, only a shape could be seen in the light, but one couldn't distinguish who that shape was. It was literally so dark, and the darkness was literally so consuming of the light from our lamp that to walk even a very short distance from it would have left one completely lost. The light would be totally swallowed up in the matter of just a few feet. The only thing you could do in such a case would be to lie down on the ground and not move at all. Anything else could lead you into a tree or stumbling over a rock or into a small gorge or maybe into a bear that was waiting out the dark too. The only source of comfort at all was that simple little lamp with the slowly fading fuel inside of it. The people of Egypt that had oil lamps or torches could light them and move around in the house, but it would be beyond foolish to walk outdoors without at least one or two other you know, lamps with them because if one of them went out, you would be stuck. The only true option would be to sit in the dark, hope for relief to come, and ponder the nature of God who has such immense power. The sediment here is beautifully reflected in Hannah's prayer of 1 Samuel chapter 2. She says these words, For the pillars of the earth are the Lord's, and he has set the world upon them. He will guard the feet of his saints, but the wicked shall be silent in darkness. Verse 23 continues, But all the children of Israel had light in their dwellings. The same distinction, which has been explicitly noted in several of the other plagues, is noted here again. Many commentaries on this verse go beyond what the intent is by overstating what it's trying to say, though. The intent here is that Goshen, where Israel dwelt, was light. This isn't speaking of individual dwellings which are individually lighted. Rather, it is speaking of the collective dwellings of Israel having light. The reason for the distinction is explained very well by John Lang. Here's what he says. The judgment of darkness doubtless expresses more specifically the fact that the wisdom of Egypt had become transformed into spiritual night, in which the night of death soon follow, to follow is pre-announced, whereas the light in Goshen is in contrast with it may signify the dawn of a higher wisdom, which finally brings freedom. He's contrasting the death of the Passover to the freedom of the Passover in this darkness and light contrast. In this, the miraculous nature of the plague is seen first in the arrival of the plague at the time of Moses' action in calling it to occur, and secondly, in the intensity of it over Egypt while the lack of it over Goshen. Matthew Henry again gives us a poetic look into the significance of what occurred. He says this, it shows the particular favor he bears to his people. 
Wherever there is an Israelite indeed, though in this dark world there is light, there is a child of light. When God made this difference between the Israelites and the Egyptians, who would have not preferred the poor cottage of an Israelite to the fine palace of an Egyptian? There is a real difference between the house of the wicked, which is under a curse, and the habitation of the just, which is blessed. But there is a question that one could consider in the coming of this plague. As the Lord has controlled it, and as Egypt is completely debilitated from it, then why didn't the Lord have Moses call Israel out of bondage during this time? They could easily have marched all the way up to Canaan if the Lord had directed them. In this, there are a few reasons. One is that the Lord had not yet judged all of the false gods of Egypt, nor had he sufficiently multiplied his wonders in the land. There was another plague which needed to be executed upon Egypt, and there was yet more for Israel to record and to memorialize for their future instruction and their future remembrance. Secondly, God is orderly and he's precise. The number 10 has special significance in scripture. 10 is one of the perfect numbers. As E.W. Bollinger notes, he says, 10 signifies the perfection of divine order, commencing as it does an altogether new series of numbers. Completeness of order, marking the entire round of anything, is therefore the ever-present signification of the number 10. It implies that nothing is wanting, that the number and order are perfect, that the whole cycle is complete. The 10 plagues of Egypt will lead directly to the 10 commandments at Sinai. In each, there is a stamp of divine completeness, which the Lord is showing as he works through these redemptive programs. Third, It is the Lord's intent to lead Israel out, not by stealth, as if they were fleeing from a greater foe, but to lead them out in triumph in the face of a foe defeated. Whereas Pharaoh has had his high hand against the Hebrew people, they would be led out by the higher hand of the Lord. Through such a display, it will be a memorial to them for all time of the great work of the Lord. And as these plagues only picture the greater work of Jesus Christ, it is fitting that the exodus would occur in the sight of all people with the Lord leading the way. Darkness has come upon the land, a pall so heavy that our eyes cannot see, and it has come about at the Lord's command. Such a plague, such a burden, how can it be? The very light from our lamps is consumed by the air. Even a short walk from it would lead to disaster. We have to simply sit and with our eyes stare, at the dark, gloomy shadows from the lamp on the wall's plaster. Oh, to be rid of the burden of Israel, to see them go so that we could find just find some relief. Will Pharaoh finally release them? Only time will tell. Surely he will yield, and in the Lord he will acknowledge belief. This time certainly we know that Pharaoh will let them go. It must be that his heart is softened. Surely it is so. Our second thought, to serve the Lord our God. Verses 24 through 26. Verse 24, then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, go serve the Lord. Only let your flocks and your herds be kept back. Let your little ones also go with you. From this, we can see that even if Pharaoh was aware of such times of darkness from previous sandstorms, this one was of such a magnitude that it was certainly and surely a supernatural occurrence. It came at the call of Moses and it stayed an inordinate amount of time. Further, its effects were absolute in their scope. If the Lord could do this once, then he could do it again. And he could do it also for whatever duration he chose. Pharaoh wants no more of such a display. Matthew Henry challenges us to contemplate such misery ourselves. Listen to what he says very carefully. Let us dread the consequences of sin. 
If three days of darkness were so dreadful, what will everlasting darkness be? I have lived through a very, very short span of such darkness. Three days would have been unimaginable. And so to contemplate facing such a plague of infinite days is impossible to consider. For Pharaoh now, though, he's ready to make a deal. The status of the plague of darkness is not given at this point. Was Moses summoned during the darkness or was he summoned after it ended? It doesn't say explicitly. But no matter what, it appears that the preparations for the 10th plague, which are found in chapter 12, actually predate the meeting which is now being held between them. When this meeting is over, there is a guarantee that the two will not meet face to face again. In chapter 11, as that meeting is ending, Moses warns Pharaoh that about midnight, death would come to Egypt. And in the middle of chapter 12, it says that at midnight, it occurred. So Moses was well aware of what would transpire before meeting with Pharaoh and the people of Israel. And during that time, the Israelites had time in the light while Egypt is in the darkness to prepare for the marvelous events which lay ahead. For now, though, Pharaoh is willing to yield further than in the past. After the promise of the eighth plague, but before its coming, remember it was a very long plague, big description of it coming and then the plague itself. So between those two events, this exchange was seen. So Moses and Aaron were brought again to Pharaoh and he said to them, go serve the Lord your God, who are the ones that are going. And Moses said, we will go with our young and our old, with our sons and our daughters, with our flocks and our herds, we will go, for we must hold a feast to the Lord. Then he said to them, The Lord had better be with you when I let you and your little ones go. Beware, for evil is ahead of you. Not so. Go now, you who are men, and serve the Lord, for that is what you desired. And they were driven out from Pharaoh's presence. Finally, Pharaoh has granted the release of all the people. He has slowly had his resolve squeezed out of him, but he still wants to both afflict Israel and to ensure that they will return without force being necessary. And so he offers what on the surface is a compromise all can go, but the flocks and the herds must stay. But this is really no compromise at all. First, Egypt's own flocks and herds have been reduced to nothing. It's obvious that after a seven-day journey, Egypt would have completely plundered the flocks which had been left behind. Secondly, it is absurd to think that such a large contingent of people could survive in the wilderness without flocks and herds to milk and to eat along the way. And thirdly, the very notion of a sacrifice to the Lord implies that animals were needed for those offerings. This is actually as much a slap in the face as it is an offer of favor. He is maybe hoping that Moses will be fooled by the offer and excited at the prospects of it, but he would be wrong. Verse 25, but Moses said, you must also give us sacrifices and burned offerings that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God. It appears that Moses immediately understood the intentions of Pharaoh concerning the flocks and the herds. There's nothing stated here that the Egyptians would plunder them, but the way that Moses responds shows that Pharaoh was looking at the flocks as his own already. He says, you must give us sacrifices and burnt offerings. He doesn't say that they need to take their animals as he did in the past, nor does he even say that they need to be allowed to take their animals. Instead, his words are chosen to highlight the situation as he perceives it. It is as if Pharaoh thinks the flocks are already his. But Moses responds to the contrary. Verse 26, our livestock also shall go with us. They are not Pharaoh's livestock, and he is not the one to control the decision as to whether they will stay or whether they will go. The demand was made before, and it is repeated now. 
And the demand is absolute in its scope, as we see with the continued words of verse 26. Not a hoof shall be left behind. This is a proverbial saying. It's an idiom. It means that not the smallest fraction of something. All right, Every animal will go and nothing will be left behind. It is also the very first time in the Bible that a hoof is mentioned. The word is parsa, which comes from the word paras, which means to divide. Hence, you have the logic of the idiom. Even that which can be divided will not be left behind. And the reason for this will no longer be held from Pharaoh. If he had missed the reason in his thinking before, it will now be explicitly stated to him. Verse 26 going on, For we must take some of them to serve the Lord our God. And even we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there. The animals are for the worship in the wilderness to Jehovah, the same God who has laid waste the land of Egypt and the same God who is their God. He is to be saved and the scope of the service is not even known to those who will serve. Hence, the pronoun we in the term and even we do not know is emphatic. Moses is hiding nothing but openly explaining that they have no idea what lies ahead and when they gather before the Lord, he will let them know at that time. Until they arrive and assemble, they are as much in the dark concerning the details of the offerings as Pharaoh is. Hence, every animal must go. Moses is adamant, and the Geneva Bible explains why. Listen to what the Geneva Bible says. Think of it in context with our prophecy update today, okay? The ministers of God should not yield one iota to the wicked in regards to their mission. What a good lesson for us to consider even now. We have been given directives in the Bible concerning our faith and our practice, but we don't have all the details always. If the Lord tells us that homosexuality is not to be condoned in the church, we are not to yield an inch in regard to that issue. Whatever the issue is, it is our responsibility to the Lord which takes precedence. Far too often the world wants us to yield our demands to their personal mores and to abandon an inch or two of our faith to them. But we're the ones that are going to stand before the Lord and give an account of our actions. What the world wants is irrelevant in relation to what our faith and our practice demands for us. We are responsible first and foremost to the Lord our God. We will not yield to you what to him alone belongs. Pharaoh, you have once again proven to be a giant clod. Would you deprive the Lord of offerings, praises, and songs? How long will you fail to perceive what your eyes have seen? How long will you fight against our great Lord? From the first to the last and everything in between, you have bucked against him and against his word. If you don't agree to our terms, you will regret the choice. Another plague will come which will destroy your heart. But when it is over, Israel will rejoice. Our redemption draws nigh. To you this warning I impart. Our third thought, words to be regretted. Verses 27 through 29. Verse 27, but the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart and he would not let them go. It is almost an exact repeat of verse 20 at the ending of the eighth plague. The same word for hardened is used. The only real difference is that it says them instead of the children of Israel. From the context, it is obvious that it is again a self-hardening of the heart by Pharaoh. The action by the Lord is passive. He has instructed Moses concerning the words to use which will have the greatest effect on this stubborn soul. He has also used plagues which have defeated Egypt's gods one by one. But he has done it with means which are otherwise natural, even though the supernatural is involved. Pharaoh has been weighed and he has been measured 
and he has been found wanting. His arrogance has trapped him in a web which is impossible to let him escape. And yet it is a web which he himself has spun. The Lord simply provided the means for him to spin it. He has offered a concession over the last meeting by allowing the children to go with the men, but that offered grace was marred by the stipulation that the flocks could not go. When Moses rejected that, he allowed his pride to once again step in and to take over, and that despite the emphatic statement by Moses that they didn't know what was required in the service of the Lord. How much like Pharaoh are so many? They are given the directives of the Lord right there in the pages of the Bible, but maybe not all of the details. How long will I have to serve the Lord? What claim might he lay on me in the future? Will he ask me to give up my home, my family, or my life at some point? For those whose hearts are soft, the answers are not necessary. But for those whose hearts are hard, the very notion of obeying the Lord in an unknown capacity is oppressive and it's tedious. And so they would rather to continue the fight against him than to yield to his obviously superior will. Verse 28, then Pharaoh said to him, get away from me. Take heed to yourself and see my face no more. For in the day you see my face, you shall die. His words reflect a violent outburst, which shows how truly enraged and yet anguished he is. He's literally frantic about this situation. It's obvious that he is outmatched and he knows it. But it's also obvious that he doesn't want to admit defeat in the face of what is plainly total defeat. He's like the army general who has seen his ranks decimated and yet he pushes them on, unwilling to accept that the battle is over. It reflects an intense pride which has been the downfall of many people throughout history. And because he can't face the reality of the situation, he throws a temper tantrum, threatening the messenger of the one he fears. His defiance, though, seals his fate. Moses may never again come into his presence, and yet Moses is the only mediator for the one who controls his ultimate destiny. As Daniel says about the Antichrist of the end times is true of Pharaoh right here. Here's what Daniel says. Yet he shall come to his end, and no one will help him. Sounds just like Pharaoh right here. Verse 29, or last verse of the day, So Moses said, You have spoken well. I will never see your face again. There's a difference between speaking correctly in a logical sense and speaking correctly in a moral sense. Sometimes they overlap and sometimes they don't. Moses is not saying that Pharaoh has spoken morally proper, but rather in a logically correct manner. He has already been informed, as we will see in the coming chapters, that the final plague is coming and it will be that very night. The people would be immediately released and therefore there was no need for them to ever meet face to face again. Moses knew this and so he stated that what Pharaoh said was logically correct. As Matthew Henry says about this, vain malice to threaten him with death who was armed with such power. What will not hardness of heart and contempt of God's word and commandments bring men to? And so ends Moses' time in Pharaoh's courts. For the Hebrews, encounters with Pharaoh began 430 years earlier when Abraham journeyed to Egypt. 215 years later, right in the middle of the time, their forefather Joseph was taken out of prison to appear before Pharaoh. In his meeting, he went from prisoner to the second highest authority in the land. After his death, though, he and what he did for Egypt was forgotten by them. But the plight of the Hebrews was not. In time, Moses was born and was adopted into Pharaoh's house where he grew until the age of 40 when he went into a type of his own exile. 
Then, another 40 years later, he appeared before Pharaoh once again in order to secure the release of his people. Now, 430 years after the original promise to Abraham that he would give the land of Canaan to his descendants, Moses has the very last encounter with Pharaoh before their departure. There is symmetry in these encounters which reveals patterns which are both precise and astonishing. Everything the Lord has done to this point has been for the benefit of his people. Even if it seems that he had forgotten about them, he had not. And each of these stories has brought us pictures of the greater redemptive workings of the Lord in history. Israel is about to experience the Passover from their land of bondage. But we are figured into that story as well. Christ came to deliver us from bondage to sin and death and to lead us to his high and holy mountain. He became our Passover lamb to secure this for us. The pictures will continue, and every one of them details the marvelous work of the Lord for his people, both in actual occurrence and in prophetic picture. In him, the spiritual darkness is replaced with God's marvelous light. The surety of hell and separation is abolished, and the promise of heaven and friendship is restored through his wonderful work. Let us never stop looking into this word. As long as there is breath in our lungs, let us continue forward searching out its mysteries, rejoicing in its marvels, and basking in the warm stream of love and life which proceeds from it. It is all about the love of God which is found in Jesus Christ. If you have never received this greatest of all gifts, I would like you to give me just one more minute to explain to you very quickly how you can. The Bible says that there is a gap between you and God. That gap is sin. It's an infinite gap because he's outside of time and we're in time and we're heading in this direction. We have sin in our life and we cannot go back before that sin and undo it. Then there's nothing we can do to correct the problem. He's outside of time. We can't have any commune or fellowship with him because of that. There's this eternal gap. But Jesus Christ came from God and he stepped into our finite existence. He is fully God and he is fully man. And he lived that law, God's standard, which you and I have failed at. He lived it perfectly. And at the end of his life, he gave up his life in substitution for our sins, something which is provided for in that law of God. And therefore, his life can be a substitute for our life. And he says, if you will just trust in me, trust in me, I will give you the eternal life because I can reach back to my infinite father and I can reach to you, finite and fallen, and I can bridge that gap. And he proved it because he came out of the grave the Bible says that the wages of sin is death. We die because we have sin. Death couldn't hold him. The Bible says it was impossible for death to hold him. Hence, he came out of the grave proving that he had no sin and proving that his death was a sufficient substitute for our sins. It is absolutely perfect what God has done for us. And all you need to do is simply receive it by faith. Oh God, I understand that I'm a sinner and I can't fellowship with you. I understand that Jesus took my place and I want what he offers. I want him to be my savior. And from there, you will be eternally saved forever. It will never be taken away. And hopefully you will learn to apply the truths of the Bible to your life after that so that you grow in holiness and sanctification before his coming. Some people are going to be very surprised when Jesus comes. They're going to be going from their current state to holiness immediately. Some of us are trying to gain that state of holiness right now. Hopefully you'll work on it in this life. But even if not, your salvation is secured because Jesus Christ loves you enough to simply save you by faith. His grace imparted to you. All right? 
Our closing verse today is from Isaiah chapter 45. It's verses 6 and 7. That they may know from the rising of the sun to its setting that there is none besides me. I am the Lord and there is no other. I form the light and create darkness. I make peace and create calamity. I, the Lord, do all these things. Next week is Exodus 11. It's verses 1 through 10. In his directions, he won't be vague. We're announcing the final plague. It's our 31st Exodus sermon. The Lord has you exactly where he wants you. He has a good plan and a purpose for you. Even if a deep ocean lies ahead of you, he can part the waters and he can lead you through it on dry ground. So follow him and trust him and he will do marvelous things for you and through you. And it would be good to consider before we close that Jesus Christ went into the tomb of darkness for three days, just as Egypt was plunged into three days of darkness. He took for us what we deserve. Let us thank the Lord for calling us out of spiritual darkness and into his marvelously wondrous light. Our uh, poem today is called The Plague of Darkness. Then the Lord to Moses said, Stretch out your hand toward heaven, I say, that there may be darkness over the land of Egypt instead, darkness which may be even felt this day. So Moses stretched out toward heaven his hand, and there was thick darkness three days in all of Egypt the land. They did not see one another, nor did anyone from his place for three days rise. One could not tell who was his brother, but all of the children of Israel had their in their dwellings light for their eyes. Then Pharaoh called to Moses and said, Go, serve the Lord. Only let your flocks and your herds be kept back instead. Let your little ones also go with you. So is my word. But Moses said, You must also give us sacrifices and burn offerings too, that we may sacrifice to the Lord our God, you know. It is the thing we are required to do. Our livestock also shall go with us. Not a hoof shall be left behind as we trod. For we must take some of them to serve the Lord our God. And even we do not know with what we must serve the Lord until we arrive there and only then receive his word. But the Lord hardened Pharaoh's heart, as we know, and he would not let them go. Then Pharaoh said to him in a manner sore, Get away from me, he did cry. Take heed to yourself and see my face no more, for in the day you see my face, you shall die. So Moses said, You have spoken well. I will never see your face again. This is the account that the Bible does tell of the consequences of the hardened heart of men. We get tripped up in pride, a sad, sad state, and it causes us grief and pain to come our way. This is a lesson the Bible does relate and the message it does to us portray. But there is a cure to this disease called pride. It is to humble ourselves before the Lord and with him to walk in each and every stride and to meditate upon his word. The change will come to each of us when we willingly call out to him for terms of peace. When we humble our hearts and receive Jesus, the grief will end and the warring will cease. Thank you, O God, for your wondrous saving grace. Thank you for the promise of eternity with you in your heavenly place. Hallelujah and amen. Oh, Lord, thank you so much for taking on yourself the darkness of the world so that we can live in your perfect light. Thank you for the picture of it way back in the Exodus account and for telling us in advance that it's coming on the world again in the book of Revelation so that we can make the wise choice now. Help each one of us to humble our hearts and to call on you for salvation that we so desperately need. And then help us to live in a manner which is right and fitting of that salvation you've provided. Help us because we are weak in our walk, Lord. Every one of us is going to stumble and fall at some point. Think a bad thought, do something stupid. Help us to to just be ready when those times come to catch ourselves and 
if we do fall in the process to uh, just pick ourselves back up, acknowledge our sin, and just keep moving forward in your grace. Lord, we do pray for those who have asked for prayer that are around uh, the country that have emailed to us or that are in this congregation or that are even attending right now with uh, broken arms. <laughs> Lord, please look on each of these afflictions and help us through them. And we do pray, yes, for uh, safe travels for Sergio and Rhoda and that their uh, uh, visa applications would come back so that they can get back here. And Lord, all of the other people that uh, we talked about earlier in the, the uh, meeting, we would pray for them. Pray for little Tio, who's starting out his life. We pray that you keep your hand of grace upon him and the parents as they learn to be parents. Lord, thank you for all of these things. Help us in these uh, endeavors. And above all, remind us that we should always praise you for what you have done. You have done great things through your son, our Lord Jesus. And so it's in his name we do pray. Amen. It sure is good to know that God is out there when this world's falling apart the way it is. I mean, it is just so wonderful to know that we can hold on to him and to... Wow, what a world we live in. Paul gives us the instruction for the uh, Lord's Supper, right? From his hand in uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 11. And uh, there he wrote these words. For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus, on the same night in which he was betrayed, took the bread, and he would have given thanks over this. He would have said these words, Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu Olam hamotzi lechem min ha'aretz. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, who brings forth bread from the earth. And he broke it, and he said, Take and eat. This is my body, which is broken for you. Do this in remembrance of me. In the same manner, he also took the cup after supper. He would have blessed it as well. He would have said, Baruch ata Adonai Eloheinu melech haolam, borei peri hagafen. Blessed art thou, O Lord our God, King of the universe, creator of the fruit of the vine. This cup is the new covenant in my blood, this do as often as you drink it in remembrance of me. For as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes. <clears throat> Therefore, whoever eats this bread or drinks this cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner will be guilty of the body and the... the I'm sorry. Um, will be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But let a man examine himself and so let him eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks in an unworthy manner eats and drinks judgment to himself, not discerning the Lord's body. body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. 
the body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. The body and the blood of the Lord Jesus Christ. Glory be to the Father, and to the Son, and to the Holy Ghost. As it was in the beginning, is now, and ever shall be, world without end. Amen. Heavenly Father, thank you for this table that we come to each week. It is such an important part of my week, and I hope that each person feels the same. Remembering what you did for us on the cross of Calvary. Proclaiming that until you come again, which is as certain as the ground under our feet. You are coming again, and we just long for that day. Even so, come Lord Jesus. Amen. Amen.